Hello and welcome back to this seventh episode of The Crit. It's lovely to be with you all again. My name is Ollie Stratford. I'm one of your hosts. And my name is Christina Rapatsky. I'm your other host. There's been lots of news. It's all geared into action again, hasn't it? It's too much. <laughs> the The gears of the design world have begun grinding. And suddenly there's a lot to cover. A lot of internet news this week as well, I think. Um, the internet seems to be becoming very big. Catching on. You heard it here first. Never demolish, never remove or replace. Always add, transform and reuse. The Pritzker Prize has certainly come a long way from its architecture of the early 2000s. Yeah, those are words to live by. It's the motto of Anne Lacaton and Jean-Philippe Vassal, who have been awarded the Pritzker Prize of 2021, sort of the Nobel Prize of architecture. I think they're an exciting appointment. And normally the Pritzker is quite divisive in who wins it. Uh, Certain members of the architecture community are invariably pissed off. Others are delighted and punching the air. This time everyone seems to be able to get behind uh, Lacaton and Vassal, I suppose because the ethos they've built their career on, this idea of reusing and not necessarily demolishing but adapting, is something that's so relevant right now and and so right on in architecture discourse. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's lots of images circulating right now of their work and people will be aware of some of the main projects but still think it's worth reflecting on something like their uh, social housing projects in Paris and Bordeaux the ones where they've taken existing mid to high rise buildings that were put up in the 70s or thereabouts and that have grown pretty tired and rather than demolishing and building fresh and very expensive flats which is what happens all too often when neighborhoods are regenerated by big developers they've simply sheathed those existing blocks in uh, in glass, created balconies and terraces and winter gardens, as they call them. So expanded the space that each resident has. They expanded the floor plans, didn't they, to open it out a little bit more and sort of remove the old concrete facade and, as you say, put on this transparent facade to create those balconies. Exactly. And uh, the residents didn't have to move out while this was happening. That's the other extraordinary thing. And when you see the pictures, the before and after, it's just, it's, it's so good. It's like it would make for an amazing... BuzzFeed listicle, you know, one of those that you just uh, scroll through endlessly because every picture is delightful. You see a kind of really tired and worn room opened up beautifully, light let in. Yeah, I think Lacaton and Vassal have been very clear that they feel they don't have a set aesthetic and that's not the sort of architects they are, that they're more interested in this sort of rigorous approach of making do with what's there and doing the best you can for each individual circumstance. They often do have these very transparent buildings, though. There is quite a heavy use of glass to let natural light in. Also quite quite open and unprogrammed mm. spaces, spaces that leave the user with quite a lot of freedom to do what they want. So even when they're not using glass, like they did a very famous renovation of Palais de Tokyo uh, in Paris, mm. the museum, not much glass there because they sort of excavated the museum. They excavated down to get more space. But again, very open gallery spaces there, not particularly prescriptive ones. And those seem to be hallmarks of their work. Yeah, it's interesting you say about the glass. Their, their buildings are sort of austere but shimmering at the same time. It's, I, 
I know they say they don't have a look, but y- you you can sort of recognize their style when you look at their uh, <laughs> their buildings. It's the austere shimmer. They do have a look. <laughs> I read in Ollie Wainwright's piece in The Guardian that they actually, um, they were commissioned to regenerate a square in Bordeaux. And uh, they looked at the square and then they said, actually, the square's fine. They were like, we're, we're not going to do it. <laughs> I read the same article. It's very nice. I think in the end, they consented to put down some more gravel and said that was fine. And said, like, architecture should be more like that. It should be going to the doctor. If you need help and you need some medicine or intervention, we'll provide that. But if you're fine, we're not going to prescribe you drugs for no reason. Um, Which is a nice way of looking at it. I think this is something which really seems to characterise them. I agree. I think it's a slight stretch and slightly silly on the part of some commentators to say they don't have an aesthetic. There does, there do seem to be common visual elements. I think what the difference to some architects is that aesthetic is justified. They, The buildings look like that often, not because they like things to look like that, but because that's what happens when you give wide open spaces and lots of natural lights. There's a rigour there and a reason behind the aesthetic and it's grounded which I think is lovely and it's not true of all of their buildings there is visual variety but a, a, a decent number of them I think the other thing they're really significant in terms of is that they showed that working with existing buildings can often be an awful lot cheaper in fact nearly always is an awful lot cheaper what can you do that gives a meaningful difference keeps costs down and isn't wasteful in terms of material, in terms of financial resource. So I think they are quite inspiring winners. I think they definitely present a vision of architecture that is hopeful and more mature than some of the form making you see elsewhere in the industry. So there was a significant birthday the other week, 32 years old. Do you know uh, who or what? There's a clue for you turned 32? Well, our producer, Evie Hall, had a birthday last week, so it could be her. I don't think she's 32, though. No, she's definitely a bit younger than that. (laughs) Okay, who is it? It's the World Wide Web. Ah, your friend and mine. (laughs) We know the World Wide Web. Yeah, turned 32 the other week, and Tim Berners-Lee, its inventor, put out a blog post uh, together with his collaborator, Rosemary Leith, which is a sort of annual address about the state of the internet. Yeah, Tim Berners-Lee puts this out every year on the on his Proud Creations birthday. And I guess it's a little bit um, a, st- a state of the union almost, him reflecting on online, <laughs> what's going well, what's not going so well. Uh, there's always a slight sense of creator's guilt about it. He's a little bit Robin Oppenheimer becoming the destroyer of worlds. He he often sort of laments the way that the internet has progressed and its movement away from this ideal of a democratic, open, supportive space sharing knowledge. Um, so what did he what did he have this year? So this year was a little bit different, actually, in terms of the inventor's guilt, because he uh, he said that there's not enough Internet going around. There needs to be more of it, uh, more access to the Internet and that it should be a universal human right. He focused in particular on young people around the world uh, not having access apparently globally only a third of young people have access to the internet 
Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point because particularly this year during the pandemic and lockdown, all schooling has moved online, or at least for portions of the year. Uh, people were being homeschooled effectively over platforms like Zoom and Microsoft Teams. And I think there's a presumption that that's possible for everyone. But as you say, it's definitely not. And even in the UK, which I think people think of as a very connected society, Ofcom has a statistic that somewhere between 1.14 million and 1.78 million children don't have home access to a laptop, desktop or tablet, and more than 880,000 children live in a household without any internet other than mobile internet. Now, that's a massive thing, because if it's expected that you're going to be getting all of these essential resources like education through online, to have that substantial a proportion of people being left behind is kind of shocking. Yeah, I think it's interesting because this was something that actually came up just a few years ago in 2019, which seems an age ago, but in Labour's election campaign in 2019, one of the pledges was to nationalise British Telecom and uh, to provide free internet, uh, free universal internet. And this was lampooned at the time as a, a crazy uh, communist, a crazed communist scheme, I think it was called by, by Boris Johnson at the time. But it doesn't seem so crazy now, especially in the light of the pandemic and perhaps especially in the light of the inventor of the World Wide Web making similar demands, not perhaps to nationalise telecom services, but certainly to uh, put a lot of money into making the infrastructure better around the world. I mean, it's been discussed for quite a while, this thing of... um is access to the internet now a basic human right with so much of human existence tied up with the online world? Is it a right to have access to that? And I think definitely the mood seems to be shifting towards that. I wouldn't be surprised if that's codified in the not-too-distant future. Have you ever been to Kleinborn, Ollie? I haven't been to Glyndebourne, no, but I do know a little bit about it. So this is the um, country home in East Sussex in the UK. And it's over the 20th century become a sort of opera centre. And now they have an annual festival and it's it's quite a major institution. A lot of a lot of opera and music performed there, right? Yes, especially opera. I think it's like the Byrath of Britain. <laughs> I've never been either. But I have tried to get from the South Downs from a hike I was doing there back to London during the festival. And it was absolutely impossible because all the train stations were filled with people in um, top hats. Yeah, top hats and uh, fascinators. That's that's the word I was looking for. Not not a word <laughs> I use often. <laughs> so what's um, what's new with the opera crowd then? Why are we bringing them up on the crit? Well, they've, they've got a new pavilion that they've just announced. Oh. Good for them. Yeah, it's a croquet pavilion. <laughs> oh, lovely. Yeah, croquet and opera. Yeah. It's very charming, I suppose. Go hand in hand. It's going to uh, open and be used in the 2022 edition. And uh, it's interesting because it's uh, it's an attempt at circular design and circular architecture. So what the architects have done, I should say the architects are Baker Brown Studio, which is a new studio. Okay. Uh, is that they've uh, identified the waste streams at Glyndebourne, which I don't know if you want to have a guess what the main waste streams are at the festival. At Glyndebourne, French horns and euphoniums with 
mortar <laughs> made from goose liver pate. You're not too far off, actually. It's going to be made from um, leftover uh, crab shells and oyster shells. <laughs> Lovely, yeah. <laughs> and champagne corks. <laughs> so it's going to be um, a pavilion, from the sounds of it, made from a sort of waste stream of, I guess, excess, like luxury, luxury yeah. items. Yeah, luxury, definitely luxury catering. And I suppose, yeah, credit to the architect for having uh, had a close look at what goes on at Glyndebourne and f- figuring out what the waste is that they can use. So I think the oyster shells are going to be used as a sort of cladding. And then there's also some other local materials that will be used, including clay and types of kind of rejected wood. And also, let's see, mycelium is another another one used for, for insulation. I mean... It's kind of ridiculous, I think, because that sort of supreme luxury always sounds a bit ridiculous. Like, it's sort of laughable that Glyndebourne produces enough oyster shells to build a small pavilion with. At the same time, that is commendable. That is good design to look at local resources and see what you can make from it. It's funny in the way that upper class pursuits are always quite funny, but well done to Baker Brown. It sounds like a really interesting project. And if Glyndebourne is going to have a pavilion, why not make it out of some of the waste that's produced from that? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the other nice thing is that part of the brief was to create a building that could then be used as a materials library. So it is going to be it's it's going to be a permanent pavilion in that outside of the Glyndebourne season, locals can use it and so on. But when the time comes that it perhaps doesn't have a use anymore, then it can be used as a library. It can be easily disassembled so that those materials can be used in other building works or other projects, which which is also commendable. So, some exciting news out of California this week, often amongst the more progressive US states, and they've passed what seems like a fairly progressive law. So, this is a law focused on online and is designed to tackle dark patterns. Christina, have you come across dark patterns before? Yes, yes, I have. Uh, And I think anyone who's ever booked a Ryanair ticket has come across dark patterns Dark patterns is, I think, something we've spoken about briefly on the crit before when we're talking about Fenty and their subscription scheme. But maybe we should just do a quick overview of what this is uh, for those who haven't listened to that particular episode. So dark patterns is a type of user interface design online where users are being nudged or prompted or frustrated in order to create certain outcomes or certain behaviours. Very often that behaviour is not deleting an account, buying something you didn't mean to buy, giving over data that you didn't mean to give away. So there's so many examples of this. Uh, I mentioned Ryanair, but there are many other websites that, that do similar things. But the example there I was thinking about was, you know, when you try to book a flight and you have to sort of carousel through like a number of pages where you're given options to buy add-ons and there's just a tiny button at the bottom of the page that you have to scroll down Uh, And it's probably not in a very bold color and it will say, no, thank you, continue. Making it look like you have to, like you have to buy those add-ons. Yeah, I think the classic example are newspapers, for instance, where it flashes up 
uh, accept all cookies when you join. And if you want to reject cookies or limit those, it's actually quite hard to do. It's a fairly nebulous concept, but I think a good way of thinking about it is it's a way of designing online which shifts power away from the user and makes it harder for them to do the things they might want to do and shifts the balance of power towards the websites. So it's in websites' interest to collect personal data for various reasons, none of them very good, and dark patterns make it easier for them to do that. It frustrates the user for the benefit of the site. So uh, back to the news story. Uh, California already has some of the strictest consumer privacy regulations in the United States. So there's this uh, bill from uh, 2018 called the California Consumer Privacy Act. That's the one, CCPA. I had it on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, it's very similar to GDPR in Europe, if anyone isn't familiar with it. There are a couple of differences, but nothing massive. So it just gives tighter tighter sort of privacy laws, really, in comparison to Europe and the rest of the US. What they've done now is that they've added this um, dark patterns specific uh, bit of legislation to it, which means that there's certain things you mustn't do. So any piece of design that has, quote, the substantial effect of subverting or impairing a consumer's choice to opt out. You can't use confusing language like, don't not sell my personal information, you know, double negatives that make it look like you're opting out when in fact you're opting in. I think the really interesting thing that they've done is that they've designed something to help roll out this legislation. Have you seen this little button they've made, Ollie? This is the little pill chap, right? Yeah, that's exactly. It's a little blue pill, which sounds worrying. Better than red pill, I suppose. <laughs> But yeah, that's a, that's a whole other thing. But this is a, a very clear emblem which has um, a tick for opt-in and a, an X for opt-out. And this is something that they've made available to... Uh, sorry, Ollie's cat just ran, <laughs> ran across the screen. Fresh from his litter tray. <laughs> you better wipe down your keyboard, I think. Where were we? This piece of... Inter- sorry, this, this little button that they've made... I think this is the most interesting part of the uh, of the story, actually. Yeah, it is. It's a really positive thing, I suppose, because it's a clear design intervention of a way to try and improve this situation. I have to say, I'm a little bit sceptical about the whole thing. I think it's very good that California have done this. However, that pill, companies aren't obliged to use that. It's just available to them if they'd like to. And the problem is dark patterns aren't this clear, well-defined thing. It's not, say, a specific design strategy. It's almost more like an entire suite of bad design. So things which break traditional design rules, like make things legible, make things easy to the user. So I think it's very good and important that legislation is coming in around this. But what I expect to see are companies just finding other ways to create dark patterns and finding ways of circumventing it, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I do have similar feelings about using dark patterns as a legal category because the law historically is not very good at sort of uh, dealing with design and visuals it's just so hard to pin down what effect a piece of design has uh, on the user. And the thing you said there about sort of dark patterns being bad design, you, 
could also say dark patterns are good design because if you're asking the e-retailer or whatever website it is that wants to harvest your information that's it, it's good design in uh, in terms of their interests that's making users do what uh, they want them to do sure i've i've fallen into this old honey trap of suggesting all design is for the public benefit and good which definitely isn't true uh and oh, there's a good no. project called design and violence which looks into this a lot more Paola Antonelli and Jema Hunt uh, initiated so I recommend that to anyone but I suppose there are certain values which get upheld an awful lot in design and which people would like to think mm-hmm. design is and certainly dark patterns runs counter to those I'm not saying it's good I'm just saying that from the perspective of of, of the people who are commissioning user interface designers to create these things they're probably getting the exact desired effect that they want from the design in a dark pattern But I think this is a story that will continue to follow, uh, not just legislation around this in the States, but uh, other parts of the world as well. I think it's it's certainly a topic that's quite close to my heart. um, And I think yours as well, Ollie. Yeah, I think definitely. And whilst we've sounded a note of caution over this, California should be congratulated for passing this because when it was attempted on a federal level, Senators Mark Warner and Deb Fisher tried to introduce something a little bit similar, which was called the Detour Act, Deceptive Experiences to Online Users Reduction Act. And that was designed to have this kind of effect, to prevent obfuscation online and to make sure that users were given the information they needed to make informed decisions. I believe that didn't get a single vote when it went through Congress, right? Yeah, it just died. It died in Congress, uh, which is hugely disappointing. But then it was also, I think they were only targeting online platforms that had, you know, millions of monthly users. So basically only Facebook, Amazon uh, and the likes, you know. So I don't know if it would have been particularly successful in targeting the widespread use of dark patterns anyway. But we'll see. We'll continue to keep an eye on this one. Scandal and subterfuge. This is the suggestion from Swiss curator Klaus Littmann that he's been ripped off by designer Ez Devlin. Actually, I don't know if he said ripped off. He said imitated. <laughs> I might have committed <laughs> slander here. But no, this is um, this is news that uh, the curator Klaus Littmann has said that an installation he created in 2019, which was a forest installed in the middle of a stadium in Austria, he thinks is very similar to a proposed design from Ez Devlin for the London Design Biennale, which she is the creative director of. Yeah, it's um, it's the Battle of the Forests. On the surface of things, I think they do look very similar. So Littmann's project was... I think a couple of decades in the making, he installed uh, hundreds of trees in uh, in the at the centre of a stadium in uh, Klagenfurt. Is that how you pronounce? No idea. Wörthersee Stadion in Klagenfurt. <laughs> Wörthersee Stadion in Klagenfurt, Austria, and they were left there for two months, I believe, before being transplanted somewhere else. And uh, this new plan by S. Devlin is to plant hundreds of trees, sort of potted fashion, I think, 
at the center of the courtyard in Somerset House, which is uh, a palace in uh, in London uh, on the Strand, and uh, which is now used primarily as an exhibition space and cultural venue, which is where the London Design Biennale will take place this June. Lichman said he was both surprised and irritated, but as Devlin's come back to say that they're actually very, very different projects. Uh, what, what's she said, Jolly? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, one thing that should be said is they're not very, very different projects. They are nearly exactly the same, at least visually. The um, resemblance is uncanny. Now, I don't think that Ez Devlin has copied Klaus Lippmann. I think that's unlikely, and I believe her when she says she hasn't come across his project before. Her claim, however, is that there's a meaningful difference because the intent behind the projects are very different. So Littman's was intended to evoke a future where looking at nature is so sort of rare it's almost become a um, a spectator sport that people would gather to look at trees in a stadium because it's no longer possible to interact with nature. So something of a warning and a reflection on climate change. By contrast, Ez Devlin's idea is that she wants... Um, this space to sort of make trees a protagonist in the world. So in contrast to the Enlightenment idea that nature is something to be um, overcome and moulded to humanity's designs, this is a suggestion of a slightly different relationship with nature. And I think there's I think there's a reason why it's being installed in Somerset House, right? The original 18th century architect... I think stipulated in their designs that the perfect symmetry of the palace shouldn't be disturbed by any sort of organic interventions like plants and trees and things, and that nothing should be planted within the courtyard. So as Devlin's project is a bit of an up yours to that and to that enlightenment idea of taming nature. However, I mean, she's kind of taming nature and subjecting it to her designs by transposing lots of trees to the courtyard and artificially planting them there. So I don't know how uh, consistent, <laughs> how consistently that message ca- carries across. Um, if I'm honest, I find two both of the projects quite gimmicky and perhaps not the most helpful way to think about the environment and the challenges we have in terms of, especially in terms of forestry. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think these are these are worth quibbling about? Um. I, I think I have to say the motivations behind the project, I'm more in line with Littman's. I I mm. think that strikes me as a more interesting reflection than the more hopeful perspective of Ez Devlin. I don't find myself hugely moved by either. I think what they have in their favour, though, is a sense of spectacle. Now, it might be a relatively shallow spectacle, but I remember when Klaus Littman's... Um, when images of the trees in the stadium were first shown. And it is very grabbing. It's definitely something you look at and has a visual flair. Now, my problem with Ez Devlin's work on this, I suppose, and I should say it hasn't been installed yet, perhaps I'll completely change my mind when I see it, is that it relies on this same sense of spectacle. There's not masses in either project behind the oddity of seeing a forest where you're not expecting one and so Mm -hmm. even if she hasn't copied uh klaus which i don't think she has 
it's a real problem if you're relying on spectacle, but that spectacle has already been done elsewhere. It's already been spectacled. Now, plenty of people won't have seen Klaus's work and will get something out of seeing it in London. But I think if I were the designer behind it, I might feel a little bit troubled by the similarity. I might feel it cheapens the work slightly. I think I'd definitely be disappointed to learn that someone has done something very visually similar to an installation I'm creating which relies entirely on visuals. Now, without further ado, on to our products and projects section where we look at some recent things that have come out or opened in design and architecture. The first thing I wanted to pick your brain on, Christina, are new eco-leathers. So these are the developments of new materials that could potentially play a similar role to leather. I have two of them for you. Mm -hmm. I don't know where you'd like to start. The first is a plant leather from Allbirds. The second is a mycelium or mushroom leather from Hermes. Um, I'll have the mushroom leather, please. The mushroom leather. Okay, so this is a new project from Hermes the French luxury fashion brand, which has a really rich history in materials. Famous for their leather and kind of the quality of the leather, almost the last brand you would expect to be um, moving away from leather and onto eco alternatives, because the reason that's always given as to why a lot of these brands can't investigate new materials is that the quality just isn't there yet. But they've decided that they now, on one of their bags, the Victoria bag, will offer an eco-leather alternative, which they've called Sylvania, which is a form of mycelium produced by the California startup Mycoworks. So mycelium is uh, the kind of mushroom matter, the little mushroom threads, right? The vegetative uh, matter that makes mushrooms grow. It is. Yeah, exactly. It's all of that sort of branching stuff that goes on underground of which there's a ludicrous amount, just huge quantities of mycelium. They've developed a process to transform that into a new leather version. Now, I don't know what that will be like. It's hard to say until you felt it, because I think all luxury houses are investigating these materials. The problem is that they feel either the... Um, quality isn't there or else the durability isn't there. So leather famously is very hard wearing and will last for generations. On some of the alternatives, that's not true. I think there's, it's really interesting, this uh, business of eco leather, because it strikes me that there's been a, an enormous PR coup in the last uh, few years where vegan leather has become associated with oh something positive it's vegan and it's uh you know it's it's great it's an alternative to um to animal leather and then when you look at it of course it's it's just plastic it's just a plastic option and so i think there's a problem with language here in terms of how how leather alternatives have been discussed there is and there's a lot of debate within the industry as to whether some of these things be they pleather the plastic leather you talk about or these natural alternatives whether they should even be called leather now i think people go back and forth on that there's some arguments in favor because it stresses it as an alternative and makes it clear that you could use this in place of leather i think on the other side you know, why link it to leather? If it's not leather, it brings all sorts of problems. Um, but this is something which all birds are looking at. So all bands, um, mm. 
is is billed as a sort of more ethical, sustainable footwear brand. Came out of New Zealand and they've done a lot of work with material development, both in terms of foams for uh, soles of shoes and also different ways of building an upper. So they have eucalyptus fibres and things like that. They also worked Haven't with... Haven't they also been working with uh, chitin or, or, or chitin? I never know how to pronounce that word. The, but you, uh, but the oyster, not oyster shells. That's glyndebourne. Yeah, like authentic uh, <laughs> Exactly. They worked with uh, seafood shells and wove that yeah. in as an anti-odor device. They now have uh, what they bill as the world's first one hundred percent natural plant-based leather alternative, which is produced by the uh, Natural Fibre Welding Company. It's made from a material called mirum, which I have to say I haven't been able to find many details on bar it's made from plants one of the things that frustrates me about this world is that the information available about the materials it's is it comes mainly from press releases from the companies themselves which uh, means that there's lots of competing claims you know this is the world's first of this and that and uh, it's hard to know actually with any great deal of accuracy whether that's entirely true so how widely used will these new materials be is it going to be like a small collection well, of, or is it going to be rolled out across the board? I think Hermes's is going to be a boutique product. You know, that's the nature of Hermes. They don't produce masses and it's only one option on one of their bags. So that sounds like a relatively small scale launch. All mm. birds are speaking a little bit bigger. So they say that it's going to be um, a material used in a major commercial footwear product launch later this year. And all birds are comparatively mass market as well. Yeah. So I think that's interesting. And that's certainly what they're trading on. So when they say it's the world's first 100% plant-based leather alternative, I'm not sure that's true. I've definitely come across other ones out there. There's something called Pinyatex, for instance, made from uh, pineapple leaf. And as far as I know, that's 100% natural as well. I think what they're trying to stress is that this material is more scalable in some way. Or part of their offering seems to be this promise that it's going to be worked into a major commercial collection. Now, it wouldn't be a products and projects segment if we didn't talk about a chair. The old stalwart of the design world. Uh, We have a nice one this time round, however, I have to say. This is Petit, a dining chair by Neri and Who. Uh, which has been launched by Della Spada, a Portugal-based brand, which does a lot of really beautiful woodwork. And Neri and Hu are Shanghai-based design and architecture practice, whose work is, is really wonderful. So this this chair, I think, came out of a restaurant project, the restaurant Papi in Paris. It did, yeah. It's, it's quite nice because it's one of those chairs, it's one of those furniture pieces that has been designed for a specific environment. So Putti was developed for Papi, Uh, which is a new pizza restaurant opened in Paris. And it's kind of been informed by that. So Papi has been installed in an old Houseman building, which Neri and Who have done the architecture for. And they've done a really nice job, actually. It's a very tight site. It's a very small space within this building. I think it's 52 square metres to fit in a restaurant and its kitchen, which is tiny. So as a result, this chair is quite compact. But they've treated the history of the building quite beautifully. They've stripped away a lot of things. So you see different 
eras of the building coming out through its material. So I think there's an there's a steel column from one period. There's older brickwork. You sort of go on this archaeological trip through the building almost. Marion who are a practice who also really embrace regeneration of existing buildings rather than building new. I think the final thing we want to highlight this week is as countries around the world begin to come out of lockdown, it also means that museums are starting to open up again. And that's quite exciting because we have a couple of exhibitions just opening or have just opened or opening in the very near future that we wanted to put a little bit of a spotlight onto. Yes, the first one is Aldo Rossi, The Architect and the Cities, uh, which is at Maxi in Rome. It opened on the 10th of March, it's going to run until October, and it's about the Pomo master and Pritzker Prize winning architect uh, Aldo Rossi and his urbanist projects. Yeah, he's an interesting practitioner, and I think particularly in light of the new Pritzker Prize announcement what better time then to rediscover one of the old winners it's also this exhibition has been sponsored by Multanian C the furniture company who've actually backed a, a few exhibitions a little bit like this they they were behind the Geoponte exhibition as well that ran not too long ago the other exhibition that i'm very excited about i'm going to the virtual press preview of it tomorrow is German design 1949 to 1989 two countries one history at the Vitra Design Museum which uh, yeah opens very very soon it's about the two Germanys obviously Germany was divided after World War Two, and how design responded to the very different socio-political conditions of those two Germanys socialist East Germany and capitalist West Germany yeah, the Vitra Design Museum have a fine track record on exhibitions of this kind. They put a lot of scholarship into it. They're very rigorous. They have amazing collections to draw on. So I think it's an exciting one. I'll be attending the launch too, and I'm keen to see how they manage that, actually, how those two stories are woven together. So I think if anyone is able to, definitely do try and visit that exhibition in person if you can or make use of the online resources around it and finally sneakers unboxed at the design museum which is opening a little bit later in may because here in the uk museums aren't allowed to open until that month if you're interested in the very powerful hold that the sports shoe holds on consumer culture i think this is the place to go yeah definitely it's a great topic and it's it's something worth looking into because sneakers kind of embody a lot of different aspects of design they have that obsessive they have that obsessive fanboy culture around them and the sort of resonances with style and fashion but also as i think has been shown by things like flyknit by nike and adidas has had some interesting stuff going on as well It's been a site for some technical exploration, some interesting manufacturing techniques too. So there should be a lot in there to satisfy any audience, I think. Well, I think that brings us to an end for this week. And I won't lie, it's been something of a challenge recording it. Yeah, I think your cat maybe needs uh, some attention. Throughout this recording, for anyone who hasn't been able to hear my cat Edward shouting or trilling, he's been running around my desk, over the keypad and jumping on my shoulders. <laughs> I like that he's been uh, sort of chirping in response to the news, some of the some of the things we've discussed. <laughs> he, he fundamentally disagrees with the analysis on offer. <laughs> <laughs> he's absolutely furious with the Pritzker Prize winners. <laughs> 
I hate like a ton of myself. <laughs> new build. Always new build, you fools. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll be back in a fortnight with or without Edward. And in the meantime, you can get in touch with us on all the usual channels. Do you want to run us through them, Molly? So as ever, you can reach us on thecrit at deceniomagazine.com if you'd like to send us an email. We're at the Crit Podcast on Instagram and at the Crit Design on Twitter. Or alternatively, if you're more manual, you could just run around my desk meowing for attention, which works for some. of The Crit was produced by Evie Hall and edited by Christina Rapatsky. Our music is by Yuri Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pentagram. 